When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So we had a bit of fun and japes last week with our ancient old-fashioned names, didn't we, Lorraine? We did. Uh, Well, I was reading a survey this week, found a little survey that says there's a new generation of vintage names, vintage, old, very old, new, very old names. Guess what number one on the new vintage names list is? Oh, don't tell me. Is it Patricia? (laughs) Yeah. It's Patricia. I am officially a vintage name. Can you believe that? Well, you're in my holy trinity of Patricias, actually, oh, yes. Go in on. my life. So there's uh, Patty Smith, obviously. Oh, yes. Good one. Big love of my life. Mm-hmm. Patsy Stone. That's my mm. other Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's you. We're all quite different. Patsy Halpin, very Patsy different. Halpin, exactly. Yes. I'll tell you a few of the other names on the Go vintage on. list. There's no Lorraine, just saying that now. There's well, Anita. It's not vintage, it's exotic and fun oh. instead. <laughs> There's Anita and Rita. Rhyming. Anita and Rita, yeah. Barbara, Gloria and Ruth. Oh, my sister's like called Barbara. Barbara. There you go. But can you I see? just do, I'm going to do some really scary maths on this. So these are vintage names now, right? And that I'm 50, yeah. 55. But vintage names me. for me when I was born, so the equivalent of these babies would have been 1912. Old stuff. <laughs> oh, God. You're I mean, helping me do more death This is pre-suffragettes. My vintage names when I was a baby would have been pre-suffragettes, and now it's Patricia. Oh, I mean, yeah. go figure. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Trish Halpin. And I'm Lorraine Candy. And we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Trish and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Well, hello, everyone. We have a bumper show for you this week. We've got it all going on, haven't we? My vintage friend. I'm Even if you vintage. haven't got a vintage name, you're still No, because I'm younger than you, Trish. We, oh, keep, we have to keep yes. reminding you of this, don't yes. we? Yeah, we've got a great show today. If you count having one of our best-loved soap and theatre actors as a special guest, we've got some excellent nostalgia noodling. And two of us jibber-jabbering on about something that really got us thinking this week. And all I'm going to say is involves PJs and body image. Yes, we're really looking forward to talking to the fabulous Casey Ainsworth, not just about her stellar acting career and memories of playing Little Mo Slater in EastEnders and that incredible domestic violence storyline, but also about her experience of parenting a child with Asperger's and building an eco-home from scratch with her partner in the countryside. Just have to mention that word, countryside, <laughs> and you get really excited to oh, use catnip to you. Mm. Besides fueling your escape to the country dream, 
which can I just remind you, Nikki Chapman <laughs> warned you about she on did. the show she did. <laughs> last year. So besides fueling that, we're also going to be talking about getting naked or more specifically our relationships with our bodies as we make our graceful and elegant way through midlife. That's me. I'm gracefully, elegantly <laughs> making my way through midlife. This actually was prompted by a post on the Facebook group, which has probably got more comments on it than any other post we've had on the group. So we wanted to tackle some of the issues that were raised, some of the thoughts and feelings it brought up for ourselves and our midlife community. Yes, and while we're on the subject of Facebook, and because it's International Women's Day this week, I'm going to do a quick whiz around the globe of where our little podcast is being listened to these days. We now have listeners in Perth, Austin, Texas, Toronto, Dubai, Geneva, Riverhead and Wellington in New Zealand. You're just showing off your geography o level knowledge aren't you i've got half a geography a level Trish, in case you gave up yeah well i'm very proud of my knowledge of oxbow lakes and that's obviously come in handy a lot in my life oxbow. anyway wherever you are whether it's hemel hempstead bogner regis or even grantchester home to casey's character kathy keating in the hit 50s vicar detective show of which i am a big fan i am it it matters not a jot because we really appreciate you downloading this episode of postcards from midlife yes we do we're very grateful and now we are ready to talk about nudity shall i take my top off for this trish to get you in the mood that would be quite uh don't know what job it's audio only isn't it (laughs) exactly So just to reassure everyone, Lorraine hasn't taken off her top. She is wearing yeah. a rather fetching blue stripy shirt. We're wearing Almost the same thing again. Exactly the same as ridiculous. Mine. I don't know how it happens. I know. Every time we turn up in the same clothes. But anyway, we will be talking today about getting naked, about our bodies and how we feel about them at this life stage, all of which was prompted by this post on our Facebook group. My partner has told me he finds it weird that I wear my pyjamas, which I only wear mornings and evenings, without a bra on in front of my 12 and a half year old son. I'm only a B to C cup, so hardly huge. He says that my son's first experience of a woman's body should not be his mother's, especially as he's going through puberty. I immediately put my dressing gown back on, even though I was in the kitchen cooking and absolutely boiling. I felt ashamed, but I don't walk around naked or anything, for goodness sake. I mean, where do you even want to begin with that one, Lorraine? Well, I'm feeling a lot of empathy and compassion for the midlife lady that posted that because she's even apologising for the size of her breasts. So it's like, I, feel, I feel very yeah. sorry for her that she's in the mindset where she feels she's done something wrong, which, you know, and I think there's obviously a bit more going on with how she communicates with her husband. But on the point of your teenagers seeing your body, mm-hmm. you know, I did talk to people about this, experts about this for the book, and it really is what's normal in your house that matters. Mm-hmm. So it's okay if it's normal always from when they're little for them to see you naked now and again, you know, not in an overtly sexual way, but if they see you naked or they come into the room, you know, your bathroom, your mm-hmm. bedroom, where you are, then that's not abnormal. And we have to normalize how we talk about our bodies. In an ideal world, we'd make no judgment calls around them. We wouldn't describe them in negative ways. We just wouldn't mention it, but mm. you can't, you absolutely obviously can't do that. So I think she needs to not panic about this mm-hmm. and she doesn't know what her 12 year old son is going to think anyway. And I very much doubt, I say this with sorrow actually, that she is the first woman that he has seen Mm. naked especially if he's got a mobile phone so I think all of that needs to be put to one side don't nutrition she needs to look up 
how she's viewing it more than how he's viewing it and really not to panic and overthink how it's affected him because I think we do overthink those things. We do and I think as well I mean that the the phrase that really stuck out for me in this was that she felt ashamed and I just you know it just makes me so upset and and angry that as women as girls as women there is so much shame around our bodies isn't there that is kind of how we're made to feel about them um, often from from a very young age and you know, it's interesting. I, I, I asked, uh, I consulted the oracles being my children <laughs> on this one, and they sort of said, well, you completely know what our bodies look like, mine and Neil's bodies. Um, when they got to about 13, when they start becoming conscious of their own yes. bodies, they are. it's more about privacy and and kind of, yes. you know, because they want to start having privacy around, around their bodies because you've stopped washing them and bathing them and dressing them don't you and 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 so that sort of separation begins but you know if they kind of catch us you know if they walk in on us as you say it's kind of a bit like oops whatever but it's not a kind of there is no shame there should be no shame or feelings of shame around around the body so I think that um I mean there was sort of quite a lot of anger in the comments wasn't there directed at the husband and obviously a lot of sort of support and empathy and and just this idea that you know the mother as you said we are the first naked person that our children sees and hopefully we spend a lot of time naked with our children when they're they're young and that is about normalizing how our bodies look and how normal bodies look so I've just been doing this which you know about it's rather exciting a discovering your vibrant sexuality workshop now this is all (laughs) this is all coming up isn't it because we're going to be doing sex special and I just wanted to mention this now because I'll go into it in a lot more detail um, in in the episode which is coming up in a couple of weeks but it's very much about how in midlife you get back in tune with your bodies because we probably ignore our bodies from the sense of how they feel and how they make us feel and touch and pleasure and all of these things and this workshop I found really helpful and useful and interesting in reframing how I think about my body we're going to talk about that more aren't we in the sex episode that's coming up but we've got to stop feeling bad about our bodies yes I absolutely think you're right and I think generation x has very much got this attitude that we need to be fixed Mm. that there's something wrong with our bodies because I think in a lot of the comments it was you know how women feel about their bodies and we certainly hear a lot of midlife women talking about weight gain the way their bodies are changing their skin is changing you know we've had guests talking about how they're just made of crepe now their Mm. skin is so fragile and I think we've still got it in our heads because it's come through our conditioning that we need to fix ourselves that Mm. there is some kind of perfection level we need to achieve and maintain because we're a very achievement driven Mm -hmm. generation as well and I think it's really diminishing for us and I think that's where the shame from comes from there's a lot of women who feel they need to be less to feel less and they diminish themselves by constantly complaining and being very Mm -hmm. negative about their body image and I like to think of it more as body attitude can we change our body attitude rather than can we change our body image and it's not weight loss it's weight management it's a slight reframing Mm -hmm. of our language around how our body changes and appreciating our body what it is and I mean I'm really uncomfortable with this need to be less or this need to be smaller or to shame ourselves in some ways I don't think I have any tips for how women can feel about that because we are a generation who have lived by and we Mm. fed into this Trisha's magazine editors lived by lists of you know what you need to do to look better be thinner feel better be taller 
be fitter. And there's a there's a whole slew of headlines in all the papers at the moment, you know, how to get a bit better midlife body, how to stay fitter in midlife, you know, how to tone your tummy in midlife. Mm -hmm. And I think that's still playing into this generation's constant need for rules and tips. Maybe we need to step back and just sit with how we feel about our body. I think think you're right. From my point of view, I was trying to think about, well, how do I feel about my body in midlife? And I very much now it's about how I feel within my body, you know, and what my body can do for me. And do I feel Mm. uh, a sense of comfort, comfortable? Am I comfortable in my body? You know, sometimes you just feel really uncomfortable. Am I eating things that make me feel comfortable? Am I exercising in a way that, you know, like when we talk to Joanna Hall, my joints, everything, is it all working? Is it, is, does it feel comfortable? And to me, that's the most important thing, but there's a really great series in the Guardian that's been running for uh, probably the last kind of month or so, isn't there, called Living in a Woman's Body, which are these kind of beautiful essays. They're not very long from all sorts of different women. Some are famous, some are not. Some are writers, some are not. You know, for example, there's one from a woman who talks about her small daughter seeing her breast cancer scars when she comes out of the shower. There's also one about somebody who was obsessed with being thin all her life until she became pregnant and then her body started to make her feel invincible and I love this quote actually or it's interesting I think it nails it from Jessica Fosterkew who wrote one of these columns who's a comedian and a writer she says I realized that millions of women like me were trapped in misery by a lie that has been woven into our DNA for generations the value of thinness because miserable women are quiet and cowed and best of all will buy anything you promise will fix us yeah I was like yes well that really plays into this whole narrative that we went through when we were pregnant so mm. there was that I, and you'll have read it and I'll have read it how to get your pre-baby body oh, back gosh yes and yeah. in midlife we're in danger I think of playing into that again how to get the body we had when we were younger back mm-hmm. which is physically impossible so mm-hmm. I really think because it is trapped in our DNA it is a, it's such a generational thing with us if we can step away from that I think that would be much more healthy than yeah. playing into these ideas of shame and not showing your body I mean this is what the post on Facebook was really about wasn't it I'm, I'm I don't want anyone to see my body that there's yeah. something wrong with it and I haven't fixed it so it's the body of a young I mean would it be okay for her teenage son to see a 22 year old's body in mm-hmm. her pajamas you know that's kind of the, it's the comparativeness that seems yeah. to be causing yeah. you know and comparing yourself to any other woman at this stage of life it's the thief of joy it's a disaster to go mm-hmm. down that route at all mm-hmm. I think I think a joyful way though as one of the commentators on the post suggested that this woman's husband look at the artist Cat Shaw who I hadn't actually yeah. heard of obviously did a google oh my goodness the most gorgeous paintings of women in all shapes and sizes and that is how to feel joyful about female bodies and midlife bodies so go and have a look at Cat Shaw is what I would say and I was listening to Leslie Caron the actress on Desert Mm -hmm. Island Discs Um, she's the only person to have been on it twice because she's 90 Mm -hmm. now and she used this really wonderful phrase because she still keeps fit because she was an incredible dancer throughout her whole career and she says I believe in looking for happiness Mm -hmm. and I think what we might be trapped in here is looking for the negativity around Mm -hmm. it, looking for what we're told we should feel. And actually we could just look for the happiness in our Mm -hmm. body. We could make the choice 
to be joyful about mm-hmm. it. And we have the choice to change it if we want to as well. That's open to us. But we look for happiness. I think that's a better, it sounds very floaty and wishy-washy, doesn't it? But I think that's a better way of viewing it, stopping mm-hmm. you going down that more negative path. Um, mm-hmm. Did you read the Emma Thompson piece? In that series. In The, the Guardian. Guardian. Yeah, it's beautiful, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Was, I'm just going to end, I think, with the quote from her as well. She talks about living with her much older mother and her much younger daughter and living between these two generations. And she writes, but the meeting of these life forces now feels more essential than ever. We are constantly exchanging ever altering resonances and balance occurs. Not perfectly, nothing's perfect, but consistently we change and reset one another's state. So instead of grieving my mother's aging, instead of envying my daughter's youth, I find I'm buoyed up and calmed down by turn. So living in between the two places yeah. and seeing the positive in both is a really lovely piece to read. And I really feel for the lady in her PJs. Mm. And I think wear them if you feel it's appropriate. And certainly don't do any cooking in your dressing gown. That's a <laughs> to disaster. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW. As all soap opera fans listening will know, that moment in EastEnders when little Mo attacked her violent husband Trevor with an iron was one of the most memorable TV scenes of all time. The whole country roared as we watched and we all fell even more in love with one of the soap world's most cherished underdogs 21 years ago. Today, we're welcoming the award-winning star of stage and screen who played little Mo, Casey Ainsworth, to the show to talk about her midlife journey. Now, age 53, Casey is one of Britain's busiest actors. Her TV career credits include Touch of Frost, Torchwood, Moving On, Call the Midwife, Holby Blue, Agatha Raisin, and of course, she co-stars in Grantchester with Robson Green, which is now in its seventh season. Her recent performance on stage in Sweeney Todd in the West End won her rave reviews. She starred in Ken Loach's critically acclaimed Lynn and Lucy, and her film thriller, We the Kings, won Best UK Feature at the Rain Dance Film Festival. Casey lives with her partner, Darren, who she met in her teens and has two children. A daughter, Blossom, aged 18, who is a playwright, and a son, Elwood, aged 14. 
she took a seven-year break from full-time acting roles to support her family. And we'll chat today about her son's diagnosis with Asperger's and dyspraxia, which she says she views as a superpower. We'll also be asking Casey about her new midlife image. She's now a platinum blonde and the eco house she and Darren have built in the countryside. And we'll find out what the star whose first role saw her on stage as Annie at the age of 10 has planned for her next decade. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Casey. Wow, thank you for having me. Listen, it's such an honour to meet one of our favourite actors. You've been a huge part of the lives of Gen X women. You started out at the Royal Court with Mike Lee before you secured the role on EastEnders at Little Mo. Yes. So how do you think, looking back, playing Maureen Slater has changed your life and changed you as a woman, perhaps? I mean, I think we have to wind ourselves back to the time before reality TV. Yes. <laughs> because yeah. there wasn't any reality TV. And in fact, I think that soaps were definitely, we were, we were the tabloid fodder. The minute you went into something like EastEnders, yeah. it was like an instant fame, like madness. And when I say madness, I mean people would scream at you in the street. I have a very name droppy clang already with only three minutes into the interview. But I did all of my natal stuff with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. And when we left, there was lots of photographers outside. And we left, she went one way and I went the other and they all followed me. (laughs) (laughs) And she she was like, oh my God, I think I love you. I think I love you. You're the person who who I need to hang around with because all of those horrible yeah. people have now are now running after you instead of me. So um and and I mean that was just purely as a consequence of of being in something like that. But the storyline as well though. I mean her storyline was was remarkable and you know domestic violence at that time because we you know we were both editing magazines back then and we would include features but it was very much kind of under the radar but that storyline really brought it out and it's especially around coercive behaviour, which I think people hadn't really thought about as as domestic violence. You opened a door for so many women. And how does that feel looking back at that? And are you still involved in anything to do with domestic violence charities now? It was a really brilliantly conceived story because of exactly what you say. Generally, if there was something about domestic violence, it was about the violence itself. And it was never about all of the small things that add up all of the uh, behavioural issues that add up to somebody staying in an abusive relationship because most people just didn't understand why somebody would stay and then you saw how he whittled her self-confidence he closed her off from her family and the way he did it very slowly in small ways like don't wear that or I don't think you should do your hair like that or I like you without makeup all of those kind of really small things and I don't think we'd ever had that in a soap before I think uh, Brookside had, had covered domestic violence but they'd done it it was to do with the, the actual yeah. violence itself yeah. there were some amazing things that came out of it and working with Erin Pizzi at Refuge um, we, there was a law change um, whereby the police could prosecute perpetrators of domestic violence without the say-so of the person of the, of the victim of the of the violence yeah. themselves yeah. because a lot of the time what would happen of course is back. that you know you'd report it and then the the person would then say I'm going to kill your mother brother kids yeah. uh, cousin you know if you're already under that kind of pressure and you knew what they were capable of you only needed you know one thing to happen so the law was changed whereby if you'd reported it and the police had reasonable cause then they could investigate it Unfortunately, obviously, as we know, rates of domestic violence have gone up and also the help has gone down and the rates of police 
being able to uh, investigate uh, domestic violence has also gone down. So even though things changed, we're still probably in a very similar position. Did you get letters from women? Unbelievable stacks, stacks of letters that I couldn't cope with and I couldn't deal with. I had to speak to the people at the refuge and they kind of said to me, look, you mustn't write back to people because what will Mm. happen is, is that, you know, if it's found by the person who's who's being violent, then all bets are off. I had to employ somebody to open them and read them. The ones that I I didn't think it would have this reach to were the kids, children who were being bullied at school, very much felt like Mo. They very much felt like she was their person. And I think it was a lot to do with the fact that she didn't do a Sandy and decide to get herself a makeover and a, and a, and a leather jacket mm-hmm. to become somebody else. That wasn't the reason why she was in this position. It wasn't her fault. They were like, you know, I don't see why I should have to punch my bully. I don't see why I should have to change myself. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. Why should I have to do that? Why can't they just stop doing what they're doing? And so I think those were the ones that affected me the most because obviously I had children myself and and I thought, yeah, that's a kind of sidebar to understanding what is happening to you at school in terms of being bullied and people perpetrating violence against you in subtle ways or different ways. Or And I think that's the reason why it was such a popular storyline, because people could see that it was genuine and understood it and, and realised what was going on. It must have grown you psychologically as a woman to be exposed to all that. It must given you a depth of empathy perhaps that many actors might not have experienced I think I was always very aware that I was playing someone who was going through this I wasn't actually going through it myself but having said that when you're on a soap and certainly our particular family was really successful on the soap so we were in every set every place you know I cleaned in the Vic in E20 I lived in the in the B&B, I was in the Slater's house and we were on the, we were everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so therefore I was actually being Mo more than I was being myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it does have an impact on you physically as well. I did have to do, find a way to get rid of all of that kind of quite complicated feelings. I mean, there were some times when, you know, I'd finish at seven, eight o'clock at night, drive home. I'd been upset or crying all day. Same for Alex too, him having to be very aggressive and violent mm. towards me. We would both go home and then we'd be in it. I'd be up at five o'clock the next morning to drive in mm. and I would still have eyes like golf balls and I would, and they would have to turn me upside down in the chair and put spoons on my eyes and because I was doing a scene from a week later where I wasn't mm. upset. That was mm. my first scene up. So I couldn't, I, I couldn't look puffy and like I'd been, you know, crying all night. It was quite difficult to to shake it off at times. Mm-hmm. And like I say, so it's just the same for Alex. He had the same feeling when he pushed my face in the plate of gravy mm-hmm. and threw my dinner on the floor. He had to go out for a walk afterwards. Mm-hmm. We had a bit of a difficulty because they were shouting for us on the other side to go and do another scene from some other part of the of the mm-hmm. show. And he was like, "I physically, I need to just take a." breath and take a second because I've never done that to anybody in my life before I've been being violent to her for three four days and I just need five minutes unfortunately we didn't get it they sent the golf buggy and said get in get in (laughs) get in get on the other side get in the cap order your bacon sandwich did did you watch any of it as because it must be very different when you're filming it and you're doing it in different time frames and and then watching it as this piece of incredible sort of social realism play theatre almost effect isn't it yeah would you watch yourself you watch yourself generally do you watch yourself in Grantchester 
Um, yeah, I do. I do more with that. But I think mm-hmm. that's because I have quite a lot more input in that show. Mm-hmm. And also considering the podcast we are on, it's been a real pleasure to be able to develop a character and portray someone in the 50s who isn't in a cardigan and chained mm-hmm. to her children. And I've been very, very lucky that the Grandster production team have allowed me to put my penneth work in and say, I'm fed up with seeing women in the 50s portrayed in this way. And we had a very interesting lunch with the executive producer, the writer, and we all discussed our grandmothers. And we all said all of our grandmothers had worked. I said, why does Kathy not have a job? Why are we not doing Kathy having a job? Why Why is it that, you know, whenever you see her, she's standing in front of, a, of an ironing board? They were really responsive. And it's unusual in this country. You do get it in America where they, they're much more responsive to artists coming in yeah. and having conversations about their characters. But that's not done quite so much over here. I think there's a kind of hierarchy level that you have to get to, but I was very lucky. So I was able to sit and have this conversation and say, you know, we need to have more stories where the wives of the main guys are not just bringing in tea, coffee, um, Mm -hmm. and saying, oh, are you Mm -hmm. out again tonight, love? You know, (laughs) we need to give them full rounded characters. But did that worry you when you were were thinking about playing that character? Because that's kind of a bit how she was at first. Yeah, it was one of the really early discussions that we had about developing her. Mm. And I've said this before, but I was really lucky. I had uh, Robson Green, who didn't um, request that his wife in the piece was 20 years younger than him, Mm. um, which is what was happening with lots of actresses of my age. They were going up for things and the lead male was wanting a wife who was 38 when they were 50 odd. And and I had lots of friends, lots of friends who lost jobs because Mm -hmm. um, they, they weren't young enough for the... 50 odd protagonist male and that was going on a lot um so I'm very lucky because I didn't have that I had Robson who wanted to talk about having a very real relationship with someone we really worked on how the shorthand that they have between each other and the fact that they talk about the fact that they didn't fall in love at first sight it wasn't like he didn't sweep off his feet they kind of like it all grew together mm-hmm. um and we've had so many Robson and I've had so many lovely discussions about Kathy and where it's going to go next and um and he's always really supportive about that he really likes the things mm-hmm. that you know we come up with heartwarming to hear that because it's what the public Isn't it? want to see anyway but mm. it's still slightly at odds with what is going on heartwarming but unusual yes <laughs> <laughs> We ask all of our guests on Postcards from Midlife about the kind of journey into midlife. And I don't know whether this is true for you, Casey, or not, but we found it and a lot of guests find it. it it's a period of change, isn't it? Your kids are growing up, your career might be changing. And we're just wondering how the midlife phase is going for you. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's quite freeing. There's milestones, isn't there? And you go, oh, oh 50, 50. Oh my God, mm-hmm. 50. Where are the elasticated trousers? I certainly felt that it was It was very freeing. I was very lucky to have lots of older actors, girlfriends, who'd kind of gone through that whole phase. And so I got a lot of great advice. And one of them is, I was on a show with Denise Welsh, and it was when she'd stopped drinking. And she's obviously talked about this quite a lot, so I'm not saying anything that I shouldn't Mm -hmm. do out her. But she stopped drinking in the middle of that show. She was going through quite a difficult time before that. As we went through the show and as we carried on, she then went to see someone about her hormones. Yeah. The minute she met the specialist, you know, not the GP who went, you're depressed, you're anxious, mm. you need this, you need that. And she balanced out her hormones. Everything changed for her. Mm-hmm. And she said this to me. She said, don't be fobbed off. 
they don't know what they're doing. We should be balancing our hormones on a kind of individual as much as we can basis. And so she gave me the name of someone. And then within seven years, I was I was calling them and going to see them. And so I I feel a bit of a fraud if I sat here and said um, that my menopause was awful because it wasn't. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually had the tips. I had I had the I had what we should all have yeah yeah. um you know interest what we should all be able to access and my sister is a few years older than me and when I got what I'd been prescribed she then went to her GP and said why can I not have this Mm -hmm. um and eventually she got to a point where she was able to have that on the NHS but it took forever yeah um and again then she became like you know oh okay I'm not yeah I'm not depressed I'm not anxious I haven't got some kind of syndrome I I just need to balance my hormones my estrogen's left um, and I need to find yeah. a way to deal with that. It hasn't been awful. Yeah, I mean, this is the point of the podcast. You know, we we found yeah. out that two thirds of GPs were wrongly prescribing antidepressants, and yeah. I thought I had a brain tumor because I couldn't remember which side of the road to drive on. Yes. <laughs> Trish thought she had some kind of anger issue syndrome oh, yeah, going God. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, this is information in advance of it happening is the is the key to steering yeah. women. You know, and I feel so sad for the women of previous generations who've not had that mm. around them you've gone through terrible times exactly but it is well, a it's also how they package it as well mm-hmm. isn't it yeah they package yeah they package menopause as as you know uh you're going to be a sweaty hot mess mm-hmm. and it's you know it's going to be awful and you're not going to know what you're doing and anytime you see anybody talk about it or it was portrayed for years and years and years people could talk about the change or oh, yes. change <laughs> you know <laughs> All this horrible terminology that goes on around women in general, the fact that you call it a hysterectomy, like getting rid of your womb is getting rid of your hysteria. Yes. You know, it's all of these <laughs> terrible words, you know, that conjure up these images. And actually, it's, you know, I think it's quite simple. Thing. It is. And yeah. what, what happens with men is, of course, they, they go out and, you know, buy a sports car, lose their hair, buy a sports car, chuck their first wife in for a 30 year old. Their menopause, theirs is packaged like, well, hey, they're going to be last chance to lose. <laughs> yes. um, and and our, ours is packaged as, yeah, like I say, sweaty, hot mess, puddle on the floor, doesn't know what they're doing, weighing themselves. You know, it's all of those, yes. all of those yes. things. Whereas, you know, the sports car and the, and the younger wife. But it's empowering. So, well, this is the thing we found women getting the right right forms of treatment and, and HRT are empowered and confident and yeah. they do they make many changes in their lives and they do great things and I'm looking at you here Casey with your new peroxide look <laughs> look at that gorgeous so, tell us what led to that that's a big midlife change isn't it because hair is so vitally part of who we are I think Yes, it is. And having a hairdresser sister, I know this. I know this very well. <laughs> it was actually for a part. So it mm. wasn't anything to do with wanting to overhaul my look or anything like that. I played Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd. And again, very similar fashion. She's normally played as a kind of figure of fun. She's like, you know, got a cloth cap on and she's like, you know, pouring herself all over Sweeney. I remember going into when we had our first discussions and they put up on the wall, you know, what they think the costumes might be. And I remember saying to the designer and the director, and he had her in a cardigan. And I said, I won't look like that. He's a brilliant designer. And he said, uh, he said, oh, interesting. Let's sit down. Let's have a chat. And so we had, a, we had a really good talk about it. And I said, look, she is the one who comes up with the idea of 
killing people and putting them in the pies. She's on her ass. She's got no money. She's not doing this because, you know, oh, wouldn't it be funny, little Jake? to go off and, you know, and, and, and to kill people and put them in pies. She's doing because she's desperate. Mm. She's absolutely desperate. And she needs to, she needs Sweeney Todd to come into her life in order for her to be able to live, to function. She's putting, you know, cats in her pies at this point. So I said, you know, I want her to be fierce. I don't want her to have a cloth cap on and a cardigan and, and to be a figure of fun. There's a whole song in it called By the Sea, which is normally, you know, done with, with him going, oh God, it's she's pouring all over me isn't this awful this older woman isn't this terrible and we completely turned it on its head to make it into this into this amazing vision that she'd got of her life of how she really wanted it to be where she wanted to be with it (laughs) and within the piece she also says but you know we could have a little bit of fun offing people every now and then you know and it was just it it summed up to me her spirit her Mm -hmm. her strength the nothing like the seaside landlady that I'd seen, which was great, but it, I just wanted to bring it back into into the real world. Mm-hmm. And so she that's had to be what blonde it was for. to do that. Well, <laughs> I wanted her to have like she bleached her hair, so I had roots. I had massive. Yeah. I mean, I've got they're a bit dark now, but mm-hmm. so I wanted it to be that she'd you know kind of bleached her hair, but had no money in order to do the rest of it. It was just growing out. I wanted it to be that it was growing up. She was mm-hmm. wearing a pair of track pants and trainers and a vest that was just disgusting. Um, and that's where I wanted her to be. And then when she got money, I wanted her to have still that similar look, but own it more. Yeah. So back to the old midlife situation. Yes. And, you know, obviously physical changes, menopause, it's also kind of like a time of reflection, which we've found. It's that kind of you're looking back, almost start looking forwards and kind of evaluating your life and where you've come and what you've done and how you're feeling about things and looking ahead to the next things. Have you done that? Have you looked back at any parts of your life and thought, oh, that was brilliant, or I wish I'd done that differently? Or where are you with that reflection? The thing I've thought about is the fact that I might have less in front of me than I have behind me. <laughs> the death um, mm-hmm. Yes. So I've done a bit of that. To be fair, I don't look at anything and go, oh, that was a great time in my life, but and, and now wasn't so good, or this bit wasn't great. I am a massive glass half full person Mm. I've always been a major optimist and it's not anything that my parents did for me or you know how I was brought up or anything like that it's just the who I am I appreciate everything that I've done and if it didn't go so well hey so so be it and I just move forward I just Mm -hmm. move forward with the here and now and being here what the next steps are here I kind of find that that's easier I don't know whether that's because my my mother was terminally ill uh, for, for most of my life and, and died quite young. And so I do have a real sense of you've got now, don't not wear the dress, don't not put the lipstick on, do it now because mm-hmm. now's the time. How old was she when she died, your mum? She was just about into her 60s, but she'd been really poorly for a really, really long time. And I had that situation, I was a bit of the sandwich generation where yeah. I had a very poor mum and a two really young children it's like um, you Trish isn't it yeah my yeah. mum died at 61 as well just three weeks before my twins were born so oh it was, it's really 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 hard isn't it with the yeah exactly yeah well it's so, what you do with what you do with them mm-hmm. you know I remember my mum was in a wheelchair and uh, I remember going out with my her and my my younger my son as a toddler and he was in a buggy and I thought oh shit how am I mm-hmm. gonna Mm, how am I going to push these two around Mm. so I ended up you know getting a scarf and lashing him to my (laughs) mum 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. Just you know, so she was like trying to hold on to this wriggly oh. child, oh. and that's all I could do. That position. We find a way, I'm... though, don't we? We find yeah, we a way, do. and we look yeah, after. We, we look after our our loved ones, don't we? That's what we do. Yeah. I think you have a sense, and we've interviewed guests before. You have a sense whose whose mums have died, and they're approaching the same or a similar age as when they mm. lost their mums. It's a real sense of time running out, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes. It's a real sort of yes. everyday must. Mm-hmm. count in a way yes my, yeah, my sister said that to me she said you know we've got so and so years left and you kind of go oh yeah mm. we, that's it it concertinas and it also mm. yeah gives you a sense of urgency yes it does. <laughs> yeah. and and you must have around you and this is another thing that midlife women tell us and we have it you know this is why we're here so we did the show um this yeah. sense of support of our friends our female mm-hmm. you, know, you come out of a tv dynasty of sisters you know you're you're from sisters and i think one has to work at it in in midlife with friends as well of needing these women more more than ever mm-hmm. who, who are the tribe around you and how do you interact with your women as it were so i think i probably have a tribe of women who are mums from school we've all done three peaks together and also been you know, school pta all of those kinds of things that you just you know you join you, th- you say to yourself when you i'm never joining that and then you join them and go this is really good fun <laughs> So I have that. And then I have obviously a group of actor uh, women that I have worked with, with Tessa, Pete Jones being one of them, who I just saw yesterday for coffee. They're a generation above me. And it's lovely to have that Mm. and to have those women to to refer things to and to talk to about. And then, you know, I've got all the the people that I trained with. So I went to Central, which is just up the road from where I live. And, you know, we're all still in contact and we're all still really good friends with each other. And there's probably only two of us who are still two, three women who are still working as actors, more more of the guys. Going through something like that, going through a drama school training and it, when it's quite intense, I think it tends to bind you to each other quite a lot. Yeah. So talking about family, because most of our listeners are, you know, probably parents of teenagers, age, as we are as yes. well. You've got an 18-year-old, we've got 18-year-olds. Uh, you've also talked about your son, Elwood's um, diagnosis mm. with Asperger's yeah. and dyspraxia, and you took a career pause, didn't you? At, you know, at some point in parenting, we have listeners in a similar situation. What's your advice for them? What kind of guidance would you give for anything that you've learned through your parenting of Elwood? I think, and I've always said this: that diagnosis is key. It isn't a label; it's a handle. I think if you cannot understand why you are different from other people it can lead to lots of other difficult uh, situations you know mental health problems and or being diagnosed with something you don't have so I think diagnosis is key understanding yourself is really important knowing where your motivations come from understanding that say if you have ADHD you uh, your dopamine levels are quite difficult to prod so you get them from different places and sometimes they are from uh, things that are more destructive and so you have to learn how to how to manage your condition I also think that you should look at the positive sides of having any one of those conditions because there are lots of positives I mean there's a great book by um, Steve Silberman called Neurotribes in it he says that he thinks that the autistic brain because it's the last bastion we don't really know how our brains work he says that it's the it's the next evolutionary mindset and I can certainly see that in the way that a lot of people um, who, and not all people with autism are the same, but can work on multifaceted levels. And so I think finding your diagnosis, finding what 
what how it works for you, finding how it doesn't work for you, and what you can do to make reasonable adjustments in your life so that you can lead perfectly regular, I won't say normal because there's no normal, perfectly regular life. And I think it starts with school. You know, education isn't a one size fits all. A lot of the time you will find kids with ADHD are being educated in a system that is not designed for them. Mm -hmm. And you can make really small adjustments as a teacher or as a parent and as a child in order to make that system work for you. Let's talk about Darren a bit. You know, he's your partner since you were teenagers. So it must be quite a, a kind of intense family life working with your son and your daughter. She's a playwright now, isn't she, Blossom, and your job and all of that. How how has Darren coped with everything in your life together? Or how does a partner cope, I guess, in all these circumstances? What, what have you learned? Well, well, I think the interesting thing is, is that if we're talking about autism, you know, he mm. discovered his when my son was diagnosed with his. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I think that makes a real difference. It's made Sense. a real difference in his yeah. life. They spent years self-medicating with alcohol or drugs yeah. or any number of things was obsessive about various things once he he understood the diagnosis it was like a it was a light bulb and I think there's lots of adults out there who are getting adult diagnosis and it for them it is it's like the look on his face when we were doing all of the testing and um, and they do that with you as well he was like this is why I'm like I am you know he'd had some really difficult mental health situations where he tried to take his own life when he was younger, first time when he was 12. And, you know, you don't get many 12-year-olds who who would think about doing that, but that's because he felt like an alien in his own Mm. world. And so this is why diagnosis is so important. Mm -hmm. And I think that also when we're talking about positives of having um, Asperger's or ASC or ASD or however you wish to, to, whatever you want to call it, because, you know, calling it a disorder sounds again there's a lot of people in the autism community who go can you we not call it a disorder can we just call it condition or can we just call it autism mm. you know or, yeah. or can we just not everybody likes to categorize themselves in their own ways the positive side was for him was the fact that he is very black and white in his thinking mm. so really what's going on with me in my world and in my life doesn't impact him at all because mm. he doesn't join in with that he joins in with the stuff feels very strong then yeah so so he joins in you know he does the family things and and the things that he would like to do in terms of my work and all of that he doesn't get involved are you good at looking after yourself Casey I mean I think the fact that you have this incredibly positive mindset is like the most important thing in terms of looking after ourselves but what else do you do how do you take time for yourself do you take time for yourself I do I've been a yoga fanatic for a mm. very long time and I've done lots of different oh, the types yoga of yoga. cures everything, doesn't it? Yes. It's annoying. It, for me, just the mix between spiritual and physical. Mm. That's what I like. It saved me quite a lot. When I was when I was being Mo, I used to do Kundalini yoga, which is quite kind of fierce and you kind of grunt a lot and make really mad noises. Um, but and it's all breath of fire and all of that. And that really helped with me dealing with a lot of the uncomfortable feelings that I was having to rake through um, because I would just get it out. So that's the way I look after myself is is doing yoga. I live on the edge of a sheep farm. So it's very rural where I live. I also live in London too. So I've got two places. I'm very lucky. So I'm getting out in nature. But I have to say my positive attitude does piss people off as well. (laughs) Because people are like, oh, fuck off with your eternal optimism. 
<laughs> well, it can be. I mean, I'm drawn to the melancholy side yes, of life, which slightly, is slightly more glass <laughs> So it's not like I don't think we get pissed off with people who are more positive. We're just slightly jealous that, that, that <laughs> the switch is not within us to do it. That's but, but I think I do all the dark stuff in my work mm, because yeah, I'm always playing people yeah, who are. Yeah. I'm always playing people who are who are you know who are in terrible situations. I'm never upstairs with the awake lawyer. I'm always downstairs scrubbing the grate <laughs> yes. um, and getting up at five in the morning and being <laughs> shouted at by the mistress. I do do it in my work. You know, some of my lovely mum friends from school often say to me, you know, that play you're doing next, is it one of those plays that's really miserable? (laughs) (laughs) That I'm going to come out of and go, oh, have to think about that. Can you just do a comedy? Can you do something funny? So I I think I've probably exercised my dark demons there. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm quite glass half, I think I'm glass half full and I like a miserable play. So maybe that there's definitely a sort of a, a and a yang with the whole misery right, positive yes, yes. thing isn't there I think but you've got a bubble around you so you come out of a miserable play and it doesn't I don't think yeah. it would it would take me about four days to recover from it now you did just mention something Trish is obsessed oh, with God I'm obsessed so with. jealous go on right. Trish do it you have built an eco home is she that wants correct one. I did <gasps> yes I did oh living my dream come on tell us how was that is it really difficult can I do um, it? Where, well, like, I yes, do? yes, of course you can. Mm. Um, uh, I did it in 2008. So I was uh, heavily pregnant and I was standing on a piece of concrete in the middle mm. of Hertfordshire going, shit, what, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? I know where to have this baby. What are we going to do? I think the thing is, is you've got to do lots and lots of research. Mm-hmm. And also it's about not going for the gadgetry. It's about actually looking at what constitutes an eco house and it isn't a Kruka body tap. It's really looking at what the fundamental nuts and bolts of it are and what it is going to take you into the next, into the future. Um, mm-hmm. Because so many things, so much about the way you would build an eco house change. They change mm-hmm. every, you know, every couple of years because somebody says, well, hang on a minute, that's full of concrete. Oh, Where are yeah. you getting that from? Yeah. Where does that come from? And how are you going to offset the carbon from this? And what do you do with that? So I think it's the nuts and bolts of, of, of an eco house are what it is built out of and where that comes mm-hmm. from and how it is insulated and how you heat it and how you light it. How and I think take? It, so we weren't too bad. We did it. We had about eight months. Okay. Of course, you know, you, you think about, you know, but paint it with and and how you've got the upkeep mm-hmm. of it it's the basic nuts and bolts mm-hmm. uh, is what constitutes an eco house a bit more research brilliant thank you for that but that's a fun thing the yeah. fun thing is the research, the research. You know. yeah yeah Excellent. now i saw you on sarah cox's brilliant show about books which is just yes. so accessible which is great yeah. and obviously we are big book readers and the listeners they're mad for it they're, they're mm. like one big book club themselves so i thought we should ask you a little bit about books if you had to give a book given your super positive attitude if you had to give a book to someone to cheer them up what would oh. that be <laughs> <laughs> we see again there you go there I exercise my I exercise my sadness through my books mm-hmm. because every all of my books are you know are generally um and, and especially all of the all of the fiction that I loved when I was growing up they were all the ones that that w- people were put through difficult mm-hmm. difficult times um because I think that sometimes if you're 
if you're reading about somebody who's having a worse time than you, it actually cheers you up a bit. It's that, <laughs> it's that, it's that uh, soap thing, isn't it? Yeah. You, know, um, you know, oh God, my life's not as bad as her. Um, so <laughs> not as bad as of, the worst, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. You can, tell, you can think, oh God, it's actually quite nice. My daughter obviously reads a lot because she writes as well. What's her book that she's given me to read now? I'm just going off to my... Face is walked off. Book left book <laughs> case. I'm just going off to my book case. In the middle of a podcast. She mm. loves this. She What's loves that? this. Oh, Patrick Ness. Oh, she absolutely loves Patrick this book. And she Ness. said, if you haven't, if you haven't read this, you need to read this. Great. Okay. So that's what I will be reading He's next. He's a bit sort of dystopia, utopia-y type stuff, I think, isn't he? Doesn't yeah. Mean? I like poetry as well. Um, so uh, yeah, I get to read quite a lot of quite a lot of stuff and 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 obviously things for research as well. I had mm. to read the second sex recently as well which was quite hard going because that's what you know my character was reading so yeah I do oh. a lot of reading around about around what I'm working yeah. on and I'm doing a play next at Soho Theatre and it's called Lava and it's about a boy who is selective mute mm. so I'm I'm reading about you know people's experiences with that mm-hmm. as well and, I, and obviously with my work with autism I've met some people who who have decided yeah. to not not to speak Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's always very interesting because seventy percent of communication is unspoken. So seventy percent. Wow, yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. Yes. yes. So you've got Lava coming up at the yes. Theatre. Anything yes. else we should be looking out for? Have we got a new season of Grantchester? Yes, that's out on the eleventh of March. Yes, perfect. Um, Can't wait. Yes. So yeah, that's so that's so we filmed eight during lockdown, and then and then uh, came back and did our regular of six. We did another two mm-hmm. uh, in lockdown because it, you know there were so few programs being made yeah. um, that they wanted us to to expand ours. So you yeah, were doing that, and then after that, I'm doing a disco musical. I suppose Ooh, you would disco call it. musical. Disco musical. Um, so I'm doing that, and then we shall see about whether we are doing any more Grantchester. Right. It would be nice to do another series of that, I think. I think all of us would like to do that. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's, as as with all things, until I'm eating the bacon sandwich on set, <laughs> I don't say yay to anything because I've been in that situation. I've literally been on the, t- practically on the tarmac. I've been at the airport and I've had mm. a film pulled when oh. I've been at the airport, yeah, just right. about to go. So yeah. as somebody said, you're fantastically optimistic about everything other than your career. Right. <laughs> <laughs> other than whether you're going to get another oh. job. So there you go. That's where my my non-optimism is. Your career has been amazing. You've played so many important characters. We've loved growing up with you as Gen X and watching you on the screen and on the stage. So thank Thank you you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Trish, what is your nostalgia noodle this week? How far back have you got my little vintage? The 80s. Uh, And this was actually prompted by my friend Donna. Might also be a vintage name, Donna, perhaps. No, Um, I think that's an (laughs) 80s name, Donna. Uh, well, she her son had a bit of a party, and when I asked how much must there was to clear up, she said, "Well, at least there was no moustache drawn on any paintings." And what popped into my mind? Don't know. Oh, <laughs> you're supposed to know the Yellow Pages ad. Don't you remember that really no. famous? But what? What is 
basically when some kid, this boy wakes up and he's obviously yes. at a party and he's like, oh no, mum and dad are coming back from oh, he's coming back to me. And yeah. then there's this sort of like quite punky guy and then this gorgeous girl, he doesn't know any of them. And he's like, you've got to help me clear up. So they clear up and everything's great. And then he realises there's a scratch on the table and he has to get out the yellow pages and call a French polisher before to get him round. And he obviously, yeah. old bloke, arrives in a knitted tank top. It's all great. And his mum phones and says, well, run away from the airport. And then he's like, great. And then he looks around and the painting on the wall, somebody's drawn a moustache on <laughs> So he's like, oh, yellow oh, pages. Yellow pages. I mean, imagine having imagine. to look up a phone number. Well, exactly. But we had those, we had to, we, you almost had to have a special console table in the hall, didn't you? Yes. Not only for your phone, yeah. but to hold the massive yellow pages and the massive phone directories, which I find quite weird that you could just look up someone's name and find their address and phone number in a book. That's did so you, like, when you had your friends around, did you sit there and try and find really strange oh, yes. names to phone oh, up? Uh, yeah. Also, like any nice boys, we might look there families up and possibly <laughs> try and ring and then put the phone down but can I just just one more thing about this because we've got a bit of an EastEnders connection obviously we've had lovely Casey on so the guy who plays the sort of slightly punky guy in this advert is the guy I don't know who he sorry I don't know your name who plays Max Branning in EastEnders what there we are I mean, there's always a link for us, isn't always, it? We it all are comes full consummate circle. broadcasters. Right. Are you going to link with your noodle? I'm going to link with the word yellow. Okay. Yeah, right. I see what I did there. It's not just our shirts so, that match then. It's our, it's our yellow our jackets. Our oh. yellow jackets. Oh, yellow jackets. Yes. yes. So yes, let's, shall that. we go? So yellow jackets, Sky mm. Atlantic uh, series. It's kind of a thriller Goodness knows what it is. Are they cannibals? Aren't they cannibals? Mm. I'm only halfway through. It's absolutely brilliant. I completely Mm -hmm. love it. So I'm watching it thinking, Shauna, played by Melanie Lesky. Love Mm -hmm. her. What an amazing woman. And back to the body image link as well. She's just got this really gorgeous body and she's practically naked most of the time, isn't she? And she's very voluptuous. (laughs) And it's never even kind of referred to or talked about. It's just normal for her to be that shape and doing all those lovely things that she's doing. I've got a complete girl crush on her. And I was thinking, where have I seen it before? Where have I seen it before? And I couldn't think. And I knew it was in the depth of my mind. So I knew I'd have to go quite a long way back. But where... What was she in before? What she? What pivotal film did she star in that would have changed well, our early twenties? I well, I don't remember, but I just keep thinking, I know you, I know you, I know yeah. you, and I can't place her. She's American. Heavenly Creatures. Oh she yes, starred she's in Peter Jackson's New Zealand, New Zealand yes. based, um, and she it was her and Kate Winslet. Right. She played Pauline Parker. They played teenage girls who became obsessed with each other. Mm. You know how teenagers can become hysterical about oh, everything, yes, and they, then they can have group hysteria, and yes, then they can all feel happens. the same yes. thing. It, it was really kind of a play, and it was one of Peter Jackson's first films. It was mm. Oscar nominated for screenplay, um, and her and Kate Winslet were complete unknowns. And I was just watching the trailer because I really think it's worth going back to watch it. Oh, heavenly. Yes, so, definitely. So amazing. Really good film. And that's where we first saw her. And you can yes. see flashes in her yes. then and now. It's yes. really, really amazing. And she's such yeah. a beautiful woman. But Peter Jackson did the Beatles Get yes, Back documentary. Get back on Disney. I've, uh, only, yeah. I've only managed an hour. I think it's about seven hours long, isn't it? Oh, I love it. I've seen it. <laughs> Love the Beatles. Anyway, that was my noodle all yes. the way back to Heavenly Creatures, 1994. If you haven't seen it, it's been remastered. Looks amazing. You must watch it. They do a terrible thing, don't they? <gasps> they do. It's not cannibalism. No, but it's quite bad. <laughs> 
Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Postcards from Midlife. New episodes are available to listen to every Sunday on your podcast provider. And we would love it if you can make sure to download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers. And if you have two minutes to rate and review us on the app, that would be most marvellous too. Good reviews only though, Trish. That's what we need, (laughs) isn't it? And please tell your friends about us. We want as many women as possible to join in the Midlife Conversation, which is what the private Facebook group is all about. And obviously it's all anonymous there and we never use people's names but that is a brilliant place to talk about what's going on in your life and if you're not a member very easy to join come over trish will vet you and then you can join in our chat (laughs) yes and you can use it to post any feedback on the topics we discuss as well as suggestions for other things you'd like to hear talked about or celebrities and experts you'd love to hear interviewed or you can email us as always at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or pop a little message on instagram goodbye goodbye Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.